Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 18, episode 18 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bomani, and today I have two of my brothers from the At The Whistle podcast I created. We all co-created back at Jackson State University and Clement Gibson and Deshaun Nance. How are you guys doing today to be on this platform talking some NBA playoff hoops? I, I, I feel good about the The playoffs is looking real it's, re- it's looking real good right now. I'm a, I'm definitely excited about it. Um, you know, we're gonna see what's gonna happen. I think it's gonna be a lot of, a lot of moments this year, especially you know coming off of you know the bubble. You know, people was feeling it, people wasn't feeling it. So I think it was a lot of mixed emotions about the bubble. But I think people have definitely bought in to this season for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely excited. Um, playing game has been going very well. Uh, five out of the six home teams have won. So, I mean, I think we know what's going to happen tonight. And uh, we've seen some good games. I'm excited to see what the ratings were for that Warriors-Lakers game. And, um, yeah, ready to jump in. I, I hope you all ready. <laughs> yeah, like I know. Um, takes. <laughs> you got plenty of them. <laughs> and with Clement, you know, he's the moderator of At The Whistle back at Jackson State University. Uh, influential and really helped laying the foundation for that podcast and helping me want to create my own. And with Deshaun, he was huge with the audio aspect of At The Whistle. So just wanted to have those guys a part of this moment right here. And it took 18 episodes, but always want to have my brothers, you know, to be a part of my podcast platform right now. And let's dive deep into it. The first topic, talking about the play-in so far, the East and the West. Right now, as I'm recording this, the Lakers and the – not the Lakers, but – the Warriors and the Grizzlies are on their way to eventually playing in the final play-in game of the NBA pre-playoffs. But we know it's decided in the East. Boston took care of business against the Washington Wizards, and the Wizards took care of business against the Indiana Pacers. Let's focus our aspects there. Clem, you could go first when I ask this question. Uh, where do you feel like the direction of the Eastern Conference playing went in your eyes and was it enjoyable TV to watch? Although... There was plenty of blowouts in both games. Well, I, I think it was enjoyable. And um, more than anything, I think it's fair because when you look at the Washington Wizards team and, you know, all the adversity they faced this season, I mean, people forget that Thomas Bryant, you know, their starting center, he's started off the season averaging a double-double and was having, you know, a fairly breakthrough year for his standards towards ACL. I think it was like the first week of the season. Their first pick in the draft, um, uh, Denny Asia, he got hurt midway through the season. Russell Westbrook was not healthy halfway through the season. So that's why we saw Brad Beal carrying the load, dropping 50, 60-point games, all ultimately result, uh, resulting in losses. But when they got all their pieces back together, and not even to think about the, the COVID situation, they went two weeks without practicing. So when you look at all these factors that happened for them to even get to this point, I think the last since All-Star break, they've had the second best record in the entire NBA. I think it was like 17 and five. So just looking at that, I think overall, I think the play was fair. And I think um, um, it's given a lot of uh, teams who go through these, you know, struggles, especially since we've been in a pandemic these last 14 months has provided all types of adverse circumstances. So I think it's fair, and I've been um, pretty impressed with the game so far. Deshaun, 
you know, Clem just touched base on the Wizards and their ride to get into the eighth seed. You know, your thoughts on the Celtics. They're a seventh seed coming in. To me personally, with dead in the water, Jalen Brown goes out with the worst injury. But and early on in that first half against the Wizards, they're down by five to six points. And Kimball Walker and Jason Tatum go nuclear in the second half to kind of elevate that team to a win. Just talk about their trajectory as a team this year in the play-in. And although they were able to find a way to beat the Wizards, what should their fan base look at in terms of the outlook heading into the postseason when they play the Brooklyn Nets? Um, I think that um, I think that playing game was 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 spectacular for Jason Tatum. Um, definitely a player who's capable of doing you know what he did on a little bit more of a regular basis. Um, what I saw from Boston was that um, they are they are one of those teams where, you know, the sugar has to be shared, but there has to be an understanding about who's going to be taking the, the lion's share of the shots and who, and if that person can make those shots more consistently. What I did see was it was a, I thought it was a bit of a messy game in the first half, but um, after Jason Tatum and Kimba picked it up in the second, I just thought they got the ball rolling and they were able to just do what they needed to do. Um, for the fans or for, you know, the people who are, you know, looking at that franchise, I will, I'm not going to say that they should expect too much from them this season, just because I don't think the season is going to fare well for them considering about who they're playing. Um, but I think the Celtics honestly should look at, um, their option, their trading options for one of their one of their big three. I'm not probably won't be Jason Tatum for sure, but I think they should look into getting some value for one of their big three. Uh, one of those being Kimball or Jalen Brown, because Kimba and Jason Tatum were spectacular together in that second half. But you know, when those three come back, they're all pretty dominant with the ball in their own sense. So I think when you, when they all get back, it'll be a, I think it'll turn into a my turn, your turn type of thing. And I don't think that's conducive to how they play the game as a team. So I think they would, I think they should look at, you know, considering how they either change up their system or potentially just have a, have a, a dynamic duo. And Clem, me and you had this conversation about Jalen Brown as well. And I think we both said Brown would be an ideal fit in New Orleans. And with Deshaun just touched base on probably pivoting from a big three to probably a dynamic twosome with a third option being somebody that could space the floor or catch and shoot in those situations. When it comes down to Brown and Walker and we talk about their future, which person would you pivot from first if you were Boston and you had to make that tough decision in the offseason? Uh, it, it depends on the options. Um, I think Kemba's obviously the the smarter one to get rid of when you're looking at the age and contribution and just the um, the um, the arc of his career at this point. But like we talked about, you know, I, I get all these interesting trades that pop in my head throughout the day. And I just think it'd be fascinating to have Jalen Brown and Brandon Ingram switch places because they're similar, uh, similar spots in their age, similar spots in 
um, like their careers at this point. You know, um, Brandon Ingram last year, 25 points a game, made the all-star team. Jalen Brown, probably the third runner-up for um, most improved player this year, averaged about, I think, close to 22, 23 points a game, um, made his first all-star team. And I just think they're both good players. They're both good number two players. But I think what they complement the other team is better. Like New Orleans, I think they need another forward next to um, next to Zion that can help guard not only wings, but, you know, some bigger, small forwards like a LeBron James. And I think Zion's not going to do that. You know, he he's he's a four, but he's undersized and he doesn't move his feet well. So I think in the NBA today, you can't have two forwards who can't play defense. You know, Lonzo's a solid defensive player. Josh Hart's a solid defensive player. Whether they decide to keep them or not, you know, nevertheless. But I think with Zion's defensive liability, you need someone next to him who can knock down shots, can be a second option, but can also play defense. And I think Tatum along with Ingram, I don't know if that's the best fit, but I mean, two, six, nine lengthy guys, you know, I feel like you can make it work because both guys can go off for 30 or 40 any night, pair that with Kemba. And maybe you can package a Jackson Hayes in that deal um, because I think Brown probably has a little more clout now. So you throw Jackson Hayes in that deal. Celtics need an athletic young uh, big. You know, you put Jackson Hayes at the center potentially or um, Williams has been playing really well as, uh, as well. Uh, with Tatum and um, Ingram, I think that's a solid front court alongside Smart and and um, and Kemba. Like, I think that can get them at least maybe you know contend for the Eastern Conference Finals. But we'll, you know, we'll see. Like you said, Brown ideally would be a perfect fit for Pelicans. He's a guy that can space the floor and can defend. And I think the biggest issue with Ingram and Williamson are they are the team's two best players, but their wings on opposite sides of each other. They don't take the initiative to defend first. However, when it comes to Ingram's positioning with Boston, it is a little bit unique. I feel personally Ingram's upside is more like a Scottie Pippen type player if he applies himself defensively and maybe a team like Boston utilizes his ability to handle the ball and untapped ability to be a playmaker to be effective in that scenario. So it's understandable that we all kind of come to the consensus that Boston moving forward probably needs to pivot from one of their core three because ideally, like you said, everybody on the team can't just score the basketball. You're going to need somebody that can score, obviously, but in a way where they don't need the basketball just to be effective. Now we're going to touch base on the teams that lost, and Sean, going to head back to you. When the Pacers were the team that officially were eliminated, they had a unique season. Um, they fired Nate McMillan. They hired Nate B, I'm just calling him Nate B. I don't, yeah. can't really say his last name. They hired him, and the expectation was they hired him to kind of get the team out of the first round, which is what Nate McMillan couldn't do. These guys didn't even get into the play-in. And so when you look at this team moving forward, Demonis Sabonis is a unique talent. Miles Turner has been a disappointment ever since he signed his extension, mainly because he can't stay healthy. And Malcolm Brogdon has been a solid player, but they're in a unique position in the East where – the way their team is constructed now, they'll always be a playoff contender, but you'll never know can they get to the first round. What do you think that organization in Indiana, known for being perennial playoff contenders, should go towards in the future down the line? Um, you keep Bogdanovich, but I think at some level you have to rebuild around him. 
I think um, I think they've done a good job of getting good players. I don't think they've done a good job of getting players that can work around your best person, which is arguably um, Sabonis. But, you know, when it comes to contention in the first round, I don't think that a, a lot of a lot of systems and organizations have been comfortable just saying they got in the playoff. And I think they're going to be one of those teams that ends up doing that. Like, you know, there was a point in time where the magic, you couldn't keep them out the playoffs. And I think, but I, but I don't think they aspire to be any more than a good playoff contender. And I think that Indiana is heading in that direction because they just know that they have good players, but no actual system or plan to get, you know, help for those players. They just want, they just want to say that, hey, we have these people and we have these pieces and we can go far, but do we have an actual aspiration to get a chip out of it? And I don't think that they've, they proved that over the past few years because again, you like you said, they have great players, Turner, Sabonis, um, et cetera. But I don't think that their actual goal is to get a chip with the way that things are going over there. I think they just want to say that, you know, we're getting here and we're doing all we can, but we understand that who we're looking at in front of us isn't gonna lead to us being getting a chip. So we're just gonna be we're just gonna be okay with saying we're in the playoffs. Yeah, and Clem gonna carry this topic on to you as well. I remember watching an SB Nation video about the Pacers' demise when they were a young core of Paul George, David West, Roy Hibbert, George Hill, Lance Stevenson. And looking at their demise, I also correlated that video to a statement George made on All the Smoke saying how he wanted Anthony Davis to be a Pacer. And he went to the Pacers organization was like, look, AD wants to come here because Indiana, Chicago, that, you know, interstate line's close. And Indiana told him to his face, we don't know if we can get him. We're a small market. And to George, that meant we're content being who we are. And that means content for a playoff. If we happen to get to Eastern Conference final, that's great. But ideally, we're not going to make a championship aspiration. And so with that being known in terms of their identity as a franchise, would you expect this team to stay the status quo? Or are they going to look at the rest of the playoffs that happens as they're at home in the East, wherever that result leads to, whether it's Brooklyn coming out, Milwaukee coming out, and they feel that they either need to elevate themselves to get to that level or taking our approach where they rebuild in some capacity or restructure around an entity that they feel like has a high upside on the roster. I think Indiana is one of the cheapest franchises in the NBA and um, <laughs> let's call it what it is. They, they've proven it. The last five years they've made the playoffs and gone out first round every time. And like you said, um, people forget in 2012 and 2013, these guys were in the Eastern Conference Finals two years in a row against LeBron and, and, and that Miami team, right? Mm -hmm. You had Paul George ascending into this superstar, one most improved player, and then came back the next year, doubled that, his incredible dunk on uh, Birdman. And, I mean, that was the time for them to act on it. You know, Roy Hibbert's value was at his peak. Lance Stevenson's value was at his peak. If, if there was any time, that was then. And since then, you know, unfortunately, he had the injury, and that has, you know, derailed his career, and he's made a great comeback. But 
Indiana's comfortable, and even now it's like the the coach. There's been a lot of conflict with him. You know, a lot of uh, players have you know come out and said like this this conflict in the locker room. So I don't even think he's gonna return. So now you're talking about they have to find a new coach, and they have solid pieces, but they're all like they're not mediocre, but they're like all above average, which is just not enough. Like Miles Turner, he's like a little bit below all-star. Same with Brogdon. Sabonis makes it every year, but he's always like, you know, one of the last guys selected. And then, you know, Karis LeVert is um, he's a good prospect, but all four of those guys are going to want money at some point. And that's going to be the problem because they gave Miles Turner the money. He can't stay healthy. Sabonis is, you know, has already been paid. He deserves it. But Karis LeVert's money is going to be coming up soon. And he's arguably, I mean, their best player. Like, let's, Sabonis, if you look at his career, he's been better. But I think moving forward, Karis LeVert, if he can stay healthy as well, has the most potential on that team. But I just think they're content. I think that um, they're known for not spending money. They're comfortable where they are. They're going to probably find a new head coach and try to run it back and see where it goes. But, I mean, Indiana's cheap. You know, they, they're they comfortable where they're at, and I don't see any change happening. Pivoting to the other team that lost in the East, the Charlotte Hornets had a very strange beginning, middle, and end to the season. Beginning, kind of slow, middle, peaked at the right time. Their best player in the ball gets hurt, and when he gets hurt, they stay at Wavelength. He comes back, and they don't kind of get that spark that they had when he was healthy. Head into the playoffs against Indiana, and they just came not ready to play. Outside of P.J. Washington early and Miles Bridges throughout, no one else showed up. Deshaun, this is a team in Charlotte. They're finally building something. It looked like when Kemper was gone, they were destined to be mediocre forever. And even though they were mediocre kind of this year, they have budding stars on their team, guys that I viewed as tweeners, Bridges, P.J. Washington, have blossomed into modern-day impacts as NBA players. LaMelo Ball, I think, has an all-star slash all-NBA ceiling. But the biggest issue for me personally has been the center spot. They're very undersized there. They've been yearning for a five-man to play that spot for a minute. If you're Michael Jordan and you have this nucleus of young talent in Charlotte, what will it take for these guys to take the next step? And is it important in the future to now provide your young team with veterans that aren't just there to be savvy vets in the locker room, but vets that can supply something on the basketball play on the basketball floor as talents. They had all season to address that deficiency in the um <clears throat> in in at their five and their four. Like they've always been a small team. They've always been a young team. And again, this isn't something new. Like they didn't just find out that they were small this year. They didn't just find out they, they didn't find out last year. Their talent is is great. You know, they got ball, bridges, and all those guys. But, you know, it for your for their organization, it's all about what you're gonna do with it and why you're not doing anything with what you have now. Because again, we we thought they were destined to be mediocre forever, which they pretty much still are, but we see hope that they're not acting on. And in this play-in game, <clears throat> that second half, I just thought they bailed. I'm not going to lie. I thought they were just like, you know what? We're over it. We know we're going home. So 
they just treated that second half like it was a whatever type of thing. Like, I was disappointed. LaMelo Ball is really good. Um, but I just think that as an organization, they're not they're not like the Pacers because they're not as good as the Pacers. But they just like, <clears throat> oh, we're just going <laughs> to – we have really good young players. And, you know, when it comes to developing them, it's up, we're going to leave, we're going to leave their development up to them. Mm. And you can't do that. Like you can't, you can't watch a player get better on the court all the time. Like they have to, they have to do other things outside of that, that develop them as players and as people. So just to, just to see that, you know, your, your ability to develop players and, you know, build a cohesive team with all of your talent is just baffling because you've never been able to do it. I think at one point they had um, Kimba and Shea Gilgis and Kid Gilchrist, all potentially all, all great players, you know, for, you know, who they were, but they never did anything with them. Like Kimba had to leave. Uh, and I think Terry Rozier is, you know, he's been around for a minute, but, you know, I think he's, I think he's good, but, they're, they're not going to do anything with all any of those players. They're just, they're the Hornets. And we've seen them do nothing for a really long time. And I don't think why anybody should be expecting anything of them. Yeah, and Clem, the biggest issue with the Hornets, I feel like, is they have a lot of players on their team that do the same thing. So, Ball, Rozier, Monk, when they gave him minutes, all our guys, they kind of need the ball in their hands to be effective. Ball doesn't need it to a high degree, but his biggest impact is when he penetrates, kicks, and dishes, and he's unselfish. But they also remind me of Charlotte teams in the past, probably not the OG Hornets in the 90s, but those Bobcat teams who had Steven Jackson, Gerald Wallace. What I'm saying is guys that probably play on the wing, play at the guard spots that are very similar. So like Deshaun said, you do need to see these guys develop into complete players if you're going to get all these guys that play the same position to where they provide something within the team and a role aspect that fits. But for you, Clem, Ball's are best player. And when your best player's affect and acumen is kind of like <laughs> going through the motions, is that something you feel like he has to get out of his system for him to be the ideal leader for that team, especially when MJ and the coaching staff has kind of handed you the keys to be the guy? Well, I'm going to push back on that. Um statement that ball is the best player on that team I don't think he's the best player on the team no knock against him like he's going to be the best player on that team but from a performance standpoint when you look at everything they did this year I think Gordon Hay was what um, was the best player on that team now he had his injury problems as well but when when they were all healthy he was the best player on that team and if you look at the course of the season he hit some big shots down the stretch a lot of the time so you know Melo would would really get it going like the first three quarters and he had some plays down the stretch too but um when it was time to win Gordon was the guy they went to he had some 40 40 point games and some some big buckets and then even I would even you know it's arguable that Rozier was the second best player like if you look at the the course of the season as well like he had some really big games really big shots um but I think over the course of next season you know, Melo's young. I think it's it's good that he he has the ball in his hands and gets a chance to develop and make mistakes. And I'm not too worried about them. I think that 
um, over the next year or two, they will they will figure out that whole guard situation. It's just that we didn't know how good Melo was going to be. So it was kind of like, you're not going to jeopardize everything on this guy you've never seen play, especially because he didn't play college basketball and, you know, everything that was going on with him and, um, you know, not being able to play um, um, high school basketball and then going overseas. And then we know how Lonzo panned out with, and LaVar's effect and everything. So there was a lot of speculations um, about him, but I think he's panning out very well. And I think that over the next two years, you'll see guys like Graham and Rozier will probably be in a different spot. Um, I think because of Hayward's contract, he will remain there. And I can see them, you know, switching out those guys for maybe a, a big young big guy who's going to, you know, come in and help Miles Bridges and PJ Washington. I think um, those three guys are their core and um, they can make moves from there. So I'm not too worried about them. I think them having uh, a guy like LaMelo, he's, I think he has potential to be a 1A in the NBA. And I think that is probably the most important thing moving forward. And his ability to lead and get everybody else um, involved will be like the centerpiece uh, for the Charlotte Hornets moving forward. Out West, with those guys that had their plans, just gonna touch base on the Lakers first. They're a team that won beat the Golden State Warriors, a competitive game. It was labeled as the highest viewed playoff game since the finals, I think. Maybe, I'm not sure. Can't really remember at the top of my head, but it was a great game. But it was a revealing game, Deshaun, in the context of it finally materialized that the Lakers aren't as dominant as they were in years past. They have flaws. They're a very weak team, and they're not at their best when uh, you know, LeBron and AD aren't playing well. And so what was the biggest takeaway you as a LeBron supporter were able to find when you saw the Lakers and the Warriors match up and Golden State not only gave them a run for their money, but they dominated that first half before LeBron and AD took control down the stretch? Um, what I saw was I saw was I saw LeBron clearly, clearly not at 100 um, percent. I saw the problem that I always have with Anthony Davis and and that problem is his his almost disgusting lack of um, a desire to be physical. Like, like AD does not want to be touched. Like, like, dude, Draymond Green was giving him problems that shouldn't have been problems. I know Draymond Green is a very scrappy and gritty defender, but you got five you got five inches on him, like get 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 on the block like it it just showed me that you know AD's unwillingness to be aggressive and him and his disacknowledgement of how good that he of how good he is like how how tall is AD uh, almost six feet six ten something almost seven feet something like that like you shouldn't be scaling the three-point line bro like you need to you need to get down there and, you know, it showed how that first half showed how um, how Dennis Schroeder was horribly out of practice coming off of a, a COVID protocol. Um, but I, uh, their conviction in defense has always been there. So it was it was internally their saving grace, along with a few a few general clubs on Golden State's end. Like you can't give up 15 turnovers and a half. That's not gonna. That's not gonna work for anybody. 
Um, but, you know, the Lakers, I don't think the Lakers are as weak as people seem. I think that uh, they just have to get back into the flow of who they, who they, who they know that they are. And I think that um, LeBron is going to have to, at the end of the day, do what he needs to do to get his team where he wants to get them, um, regardless of how he's feeling. Because, you know, <laughs> I, you know, LeBron is my favorite player, but, you know, I know that he, he likes to, he likes to plant seeds. He like, he likes to, he likes to cop his pleas early when he doesn't succeed. Um, and, and don't get me wrong again, LeBron is my favorite player ever, but you know, when he, you know, outside of the things that we know happens to him, like being poked in the eye in the game, it's like after the game, it's like we get a lot of news from LeBron about how he's feeling. And I think that's just like a, a bed for him to have an excuse not to be expected anything of because LeBron works well when there's when people like LeBron has done his absolute best when people are expecting nothing of him. And I and either and I think it's either an elevator when he does succeed, but I also think it's a cushion when he fails. So I think the first half of that that play in Lakers Warriors was them being one um, out of tune with each other because that's the first time we've had everybody back. And that second half is just them trying to understand what they do best and they did it better than what the Warriors do. Yeah, the rust was there, but the thing that Clem, as well, we've all heard, we've been hearing about this number one ranked defense for the Lakers for months. And we finally got to see it on display in a playoff setting against Golden State. And outside of the times they didn't trap Steph Curry, and a lot of that was because they were afraid due to what happened in the first quarter. If you trap them, guys are going to be wide open. So they were able to micromanage Shooter at times or Caruso being on an island. Their defense overall was suffocating, especially in the second half where they swarmed and made passing lanes damn near non-existent for Golden State, which was a byproduct of the team's 15 turnovers in the second half. Clem. This is LeBron's lowest seeded team he's ever been on. But the thing that this team can do very well is play defense. How important is their defensive acumen going to be in series matchups, potentially against Phoenix, Utah, the Clippers, potentially down the line, when offensively there's going to be times you're going to be out of rhythm, due in large part because of that cohesion, lack of cohesion thereof, in terms of developing chemistry throughout the season, and Bron going through his injury issues and AD at times, lack of aggression, due in large part because of his lack of connection and whatnot through playing throughout the season. It's important, um, but I'm not worried because uh, you have championship pedigree in uh, the Lakers. You have Frank Vogel, who's known for defense. I mean, we're talking about these Indiana teams from 2012 and 2013 uh, earlier, and he was – in charge of that defense and the head coach of that team. So, and then they won last year, dominantly being, you know, one of the best defensive teams in the league. Now they've made changes, of course. Um, they don't have Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee there. Um, and AD is a little banged up and isn't playing the way that he is expected to play. But at the end of the day, the playoffs, the game slows down. You still have LeBron James, albeit 16th year in the league. 
he has, you know, still probably one of the best IQs offensively and defensively. I think AD as, you know, as soft as he plays sometimes when it's time to get nitty gritty, especially on defense, he's going to get it done. And Drummond is still, you know, getting acclimated with the team. I think um, whether or not he's going to be on the floor in these crunch time minutes, I don't know. But you still have Marcus Sol as an option. Shooters just now coming back from COVID protocols. And, um, and I mean, KCP even, like, you know, he's not the best defender, but him and Wes Matthews, they'll get after it. Like, you can – you can exchange them on Devin Booker. You'll still put up 25, 30, but they'll make, you know, they'll make it hard, you know? So I think they have the necessary pieces. I think over time, like we have this recency bias, we see them down and out now and we're like, Oh, you know, it's not going to pan out, but this happens all the time. You know, we see LeBron and we're like, yeah, you know, it's not looking good for them. He gets his rhythm first series by the second series, they're looking unstoppable. By the third series, everyone's back on their bandwagon. So I'm not worried about it at all. They have championship pedigree. They have defensive-minded players in Schroeder, Matthews, uh, James when he wants to, and then Anthony Davis, who's, I mean, defensive player can, uh, of the year candidate damn near every year he's been in the league. You got something to say, Deshaun? Yeah, to your point about not being worried about him, <clears throat> this was LeBron James' worst game in quite a while. It was, it was, it was a bad game for AD. I'm just, I'm just going to say that it was a bad game for AD as well because of his lack of aggression, because he, he's not always feeling himself in the game. But let's not act like that's going to be the floor for this Laker team. Like, that, that first half isn't going to be something that's happening all the time. Right. Like right. that de- like that defense is 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 sticky. They when they on you, they on you. Yeah. So let's 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 get it understood for the people around the league who are generally just not fans of the Lakers or just generally just don't want them to get where they could ultimately get. Let's let's not let's not pretend like that <laughs> that uh that first half is who they really are because it's not. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't I don't think it's a big deal because i think they're all coming back but it sounded like you were against it earlier you i'm not i'm not i'm not against it i'm picking the lakers <laughs> i'm picking what did he just bashing ad <laughs> he yeah, said ad I'm, was playing I mean, soft but ad ad was playing soft and like we saw him what well, we saw him put up 40 early uh, a few weeks ago mm-hmm. like we need we don't have to I don't think AD needs to put up 40 every game, but we need that. They need that aggression from him if they're going to be successful. And these games are going to be buzzer beaters, you know? Like, they need him to understand that you're bigger than four people on the court on the opposing team. We need you to understand that. It Get on the block. Like... <laughs> Stop trying to shoot these threes, man. Like, we know you can knock them down. We know you hit a big one in the in the playoffs last year. But that's not why – that's not typically why you're needed on that team. We need you to be uh, a bully in the in the block. Like, and, you know, Andre Drummond, you know, he clogs up the lane really nicely. But at the end of the day, he's not as offensively gifted as AD is being that big. And that, that last point is exactly why he plays the way he does because – Who's going to outplay him? 
outside of Jokic, what big is gonna that he's gonna match up with that's going to outplay him? There, there isn't any. You know, there's there's Jokic and there's Embiid if they meet them in the finals. Everybody else he's better than on not only on offense but on defense as well. So but he play like he don't know that because he can turn it on when he wants to. You know, I, I, I don't support it, but I'm saying, like, I feel like that's how he feels. Like, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I can have a couple bad games. When I'm ready to turn it on, who's going to stop him? And I think the more – I think the more problematic issue with the Lakers in terms of AD and LeBron, I don't think it's AD playing how he played because a couple of things. One, got to give credit where it's due. Draymond Green is a DPOY finalist for a reason. This is what he does. He's strong for an undersized guy. And when you combine somebody that's undersized with a boatload of strength going against an individual that practices or prefers more so finesse over power, you're going to have times where he's off to a slow start before eventually, which is what the Lakers did, you put him at the five, let him showcase his dynamicness defensively. That gets his energy up. That gets his motivation up. And then offensively, now you see him crashing to the glass a lot more with ferocity because of the defensive energy he put on the other end. I do think an issue was Golden State had no problem single covering LeBron James from start to finish. And outside of Steph Curry making a half-hearted contest for the local three LeBron took, it was working. Andrew Wiggins was giving him issues. Juan Toscano Anderson was giving him issues until down the stretch, LeBron was like, okay, enough of this. I'm just going to bully through him. If there's one thing Phoenix has going for them, they have a multitude of wings that could defend on the perimeter. Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, Lynch, we know what all those present. And so that's probably going to be the biggest issue moving forward is defenses now don't have a problem single covering what they think is a hampered LeBron that's somewhat declined due in large part because he's limited with the ankle injury but ad phoenix coming up next we'll dabble into that a lot more specifically later he owns deandre ayton largely because deandre ayton is not a defensive threat and so i don't really see ad having an issue against ayton like he did against draymond because there is no resistance at the rim but it is something down the line it'll be interesting to see against a ibaka or somebody down the line who is more of a defensive threat. Now, for the Spurs, they lost to the Memphis Grizzlies by four. They had a unique season where early on, through 31 games, they were the best team in their division. Then COVID hit, pretty much wrecked their whole season. They decided to pull the plug by trading LaMarcus Aldridge. We all thought that meant they're tanking. And I think they were making an attempt to do so because they put DeMar DeRozan on the trading block. No one wanted DeRozan. I don't blame teams not wanting DeRozan because they feel like he's not a all NBA caliber talent at this point in his career that we feel obligated to take his contract on midseason. But it is somebody we'll entertain during the offseason where we can control what he makes on the open market. With the Spurs, they struggled early in that game in the first quarter by not being able to buy a bucket and letting Memphis dominate them inside with Valanciunas. They were able to pick it back up the next three quarters, but Valanciunas' presence was the issue. This is a team, Deshaun, a far cry from what they were in the Tim Duncan days, far cry from what they were in the Kawhi Leonard days. Sure. Is it time for Pop to hang it up? Or if it's not time for him to hang it up, 
how does San Antonio continue their, what it seems like a rebuild on the fly? Because they seem set in some capacity at the guard spot, but there's still holes in the front court, most important, most importantly at the four and five spots. Um, you're talking about one of the greatest coaches in written NBA history. So um, I don't think it'll ever be time for him to hang it up from an organizational standpoint, that'll be a decision that Pop would have to make for himself because great is great, no matter how long great has been great. Um, but I do think that they are they are rebuilding, but after Kawhi left, it was just bad hand after bad hand. Like Tim Duncan is gone. Um, LaMarcus Ardridge is old outside of, you know, not being the healthiest player in general. Um, again, I just think it was a, I think they've been dealt a, a really bad hand and, you know, <laughs> when, <laughs> when you play in a game of spades and you got one spade, what you do, trade it. So I think it's just a, a matter of them trying to reacclimate themselves as that type of team where, you know, there were no egos, um, you know, even their best, even their best player, Tim Duncan, you know, he he wasn't uh, he wasn't a person who demanded the ball openly. That is, uh, you had you know Tony Parker, who who would give it up and could shoot regardless. You had a great six man in Ginobili. Again, that's a team that um, they didn't openly express their egos, so it always looked like they fit together and they played like they fit together. And I don't think this team currently, with you know who they have, does that. Yeah, and Clem, I agree kind of with what Deshaun says. You know, Rudy Gay was the player last night who kept him in it. Well, the night before last, kept him in it with his play. Gave him 21, 8 of 21 shooting. DeMar DeRozan took all life away. He couldn't make a shot to save his life. Made Dylan Brooks look as if he was an all-NBA first-team defender. And so the issue with the Spurs is they don't fit together like old Spurs teams in the past. And it makes sense. DeRozan's a mid-range shooter not an ideal floor spacer, same thing we get at this point. And so as they pivot to a new era of Spurs basketball, how can they formulate an identity that sustains their roots originally as a franchise, man movement, ball movement, ideal floor spacing, while probably keeping a veteran-type affluence within the locker room and DeRozan, Rudy Gay are two guys that are going to have to move on eventually. Are they going to regret not pivoting from those guys maybe a couple years earlier to maximize their positioning on the trade market to get young prospects back in return? Well, I think right now they're playing on the fence and, you know, they're kind of in a crisis between you know, the young guys who are up and coming, all their guys, Lonnie Walker, um, DeJounte Murray, Derek White. Um, and then they have some, uh, Keldon Johnson's a nice piece. You know, he's uh, undersized forward, but he he plays really well. Um, Jakob Pertl's okay. You know, is he a centerpiece center? No, but he'll, he'll, he'll do for now. Um, but I think that... Um, DeMar DeRozan and uh, Rudy Gay will Rudy actually Rudy might stay Rudy might stay he may be that that one veteran presence but right now it's it's all about pop they're not contenders right now they don't have 
guys who are going to take them over the top, you know? So I don't think they should even rush it, like rush into a rebuild. I think they're going to be like that nine, 10 team the next couple of years or however long pop decides to be there. Um, when he does leave, I think they may fall out the playoffs. Like I said, for a few years, nine, 10 and, um, excuse me, I'm, I'm forgetting her name, but, um, uh, the assistant coach right now is going to come into the the uh, head coach role, and we'll see our first uh, female head coach in the in the NBA. And um, I think that'll be the the storyline and just helping the players develop. But I don't think they have the pieces right now to take them to like another level, especially with the West and the talent in the league. Like we're thinking about the Kings, you know. Be, Full disclosure before we get into anything, because y'all think I hate De'Aaron Fox, and I do not hate De'Aaron Fox. I actually like the man. I I said that he is this generation's Dame Lillard, and if you look at Dame Lillard's career, that's a compliment. Okay, even though he hasn't won anything yet, but that's a compliment. So when you look at the Kings, if they can get their stuff together sooner or later, you look at the Pelicans, you look at the Timberwolves, and you know potentially uh, the Thunder as well. Like, I think those four teams in the next year or two will be making their way into that, um, you know, six through eight or six through 10 competition right there. So I think that's that's going to drop the Spurs out of the bidding. And, um, you know, right now it's kind of like just let Pop do what he want to do and let him get his flowers while he's here because it's not going to be, you know, forever. He might retire this year. So we'll see. Yeah, this would be the ideal situation for Pop possibly to pack it up. Two years in a row, they don't make the playoffs. That's the first time that's happened in the franchise's history. A couple of things. DeJounte Murray was a guy that seemed like he was on his way to fulfilling himself as the ideal two-way player. Maybe the Gary Payton of our era. It's extreme to say now, but that was his ceiling. Towards ACL, and now when I saw him play last night, jump shot still isn't there. And defensively, while he's solid, John Morant was given in the business and it's John Morant. So that's expected, but you know, long-term for this team, they're going to have to hit homers in the draft. And I'm not saying get an all NBA talent due to you lucking up in the lottery top five, but maybe somebody they can get of value down the lottery board that can translate into a solid player, which is what they were able to get in a Kawhi Leonard may pay dividends for them moving forward. I do like their young pieces that they have, but they're in no man's land because the other teams that didn't make it due to their ineptitude right now have talent and upside on their roster that it, with a cohesive season under them in the future, they'll be in that postseason mix that the Spurs were once in. And with Memphis, they got it done. They beat San Antonio right now as this is recording. They're playing the Golden State Warriors. And with Memphis, John Morant is a solid player. and But it was Jonas Valanciunas and Dylan Brooks who got it done for Memphis to help them beat San Antonio. And Deshaun, it's crazy that a couple years ago, it seemed like Memphis was on their way to being inept as well. Mike Conley, Mark Saw, no longer there. But in a two-year span, they got Jaron Jackson and John Morant. And just like that, Memphis is a playoff participant anyway in the playing aspect. How do you feel like they should fill out the rest of the roster to elevate them from play in to for sure postseason participants? Or does it ultimately come down to the continuous development of John Moran at the point and Jackson at the four? 
Um, I think they need another. I think they need another piece. Not a perennial All Star. Not a not a not a lottery pick or not a not a not another super huge um, franchise defying name because they have that in Ja. But I do think um, I do think they need a little bit more of a defensive presence uh, and maybe a little bit more of an offensive presence as well because Ja Morant, as great of a player as he is, is a defensive liability on the court. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't think that um, Josh should have to handle the entire scoring load as their point. Um, so I, I think they probably need like a, <clears throat> uh, an offensive, an offensive three or something like that, if that makes sense. And uh, just uh, somebody who, you know, can can hold down, can hold down the block efficiently. To, to just, you know, and, you know, obviously with development, because Josh's been here two years with, and, you know, with maybe a, a, a good three and uh, just some, a little bit more defense and probably some training to work on shooting in general, uh, I think they could potentially work their way up to, you know, maybe a, a seven or a, a, maybe a six within the next two or three years. Yeah, and Clem, I want to hear your perspective on this as well. But I do feel like Memphis right now, they have a lot of overachievers within their starting five that kind of make up for the fact that their foundational franchise players in Morant and Jackson, while are talented, are still limited in aspects of their game. Jackson right now is literally a stretch four. Like he doesn't even deliver you anything in the post, nor does he want to get inside and bang, whether that's defensively or offensively. <clears throat> Morant, <clears throat> Morant, as talented as he is, is limited as a jump shooter and as a liability defensively. But inevitably, you could see in a two-year span, those guys prop their games up to the point where they are playing to their caliber of selection via via their past draft, and they're delivering. But Dylan Brooks is a gunner, and he's an overachieving gunner who at times is on, and then at times he will be widely off. Same thing can be said with Brandon Clark. He's come and he's gave them quality minutes. Eventually, do you see this team having to possibly get a impact player down the line that supplies to them what they need in the front court, ideally? Or maybe this organization feels like, you know what, we like the core that we have as long as our franchise players take leaps and bounds to excel as individual talents. That'll be enough to help us compete in the West. Yeah, in a perfect world, um, I think. I think uh, as crazy as Dylan Brooks is, I love his game, his passion, his energy. And I think he he has what it takes to win six man of the year in this league uh, someday. And I think that's his best role because, you know, he's he's a high-headed guy. He, he fouls out a lot and just makes a lot of dumb plays just defensively, you know, good plays as well. But has a lot of dumb fouls just based off of his temper and just getting, you know, too involved in what's going on. But – I think they're fine, man. Like, you know, like I said, in a perfect world, if they could get another two that could help, you know, the scoring load, uh, because Ja, you know, although he he has like he's had like 40 point games, he averages only about 18. So that that can't be your number one guy, you know. And Jaron Jackson, um, he's had a couple injuries here and there, but I don't think he's a number one either. I think Ja's a solid number two, and I think that um uh, Jaron Jackson is a solid number three. So I don't know if they're going to get 
that number one guy that's going to come in and, and change things around just because Memphis is a small market and, you know, they, they're another team that are not known for spending a bunch of money. So I think that um, they're, they're going to develop over time. They're overachieving right now. Like you said, two years ago, we were ready to throw them away because Mike Conley was on his way out. Gasol's on his way out. You know, the rough Grizzlies that we knew them with Tony Allen and Zach uh, Randolph, all these guys were, you know, leaving. So right now, honestly, they should be below the Pelicans. Like the fact that they're even competing at this high of a level, that just shows how good John Moran is because his impact on winning, like just him alone, you think about Jaron Jackson missed like most of the season and they still remain in the playoff push in the West led by John Moran, you know? So I, I think they're fine. I think that uh, they have all the pieces they need to be like a, you know, five, six team in the West. But if they're going to be like a team in the West is going to have home court advantage, I think they are going to need to make that move and maybe trade, you know, some of these guys like a, you know, a Brandon Clark or maybe even Dylan Brooks, you know, package him for um, somebody who can be that number one scorer on that team. But um, I think they're very solid. They have like they can play 10 guys some nights and be fine. You know, um, Bain, who they just brought in, um, can shoot the hell out of the ball. Excuse my language. I don't know if we can cuss on this podcast, but um, Bain is, is, a, is a good player. Uh, Xavier Tillman's a good player. Brandon Clark. I mean, you can go down the line. Even um, what's a uh, oh boy who likes to trip people from Duke. Uh Grayson Allen. Grayson Allen, yeah. <laughs> like he's been he's he's been having a, a good season as well. So like they have all the pieces like outside of that number one guy to go to the next level. Now, if Ja takes a big leap and he can go from 18 and 8 to, you know, maybe 24 and and 10, and then uh Jaron Jackson also goes from you know his 18 to about 20 something and, and 12 and Valentunas, I think is a good fit for them too. I, I don't know if, you know, moving forward, I think Jaron Jackson will probably be better suited as a center um, because I don't know if Jaws ever going to be a knockdown shooter, but I can see their, the, the, the way they should set up the offense is, you know, having uh, um, Jaron Jackson as a center, have job be that almost like a Russell Westbrook where he, you know, you clear the floor out and let him do his thing and create for everyone. Cause he has great vision and finishing ability. But I think if you package, um, a Valanchunas and maybe like, um, a Kyle Anderson and a Dylan Brooks, you can, and maybe some picks or something, maybe you can swindle somebody. I don't know who Memphis has connections with, but maybe there's a GM somewhere around the league that owes them favors or, a sleeper pick they can get like a Michael Porter Jr. I know this is far-fetched, but if Michael Porter Jr. was on that team, they, they could be doing something. They could be doing something. Cause I think even though he's not a number, like a one, like a number one guy, I think he's like a one a and his scoring on offense. Um, like with, with Ja and Jaron Jackson, like, I think that could, that could be a, a championship contending team. But other than that, um, they'll, they'll compete with this team. And, you know, they've overachieved so far. And I, I think they're on a good track. They'll be all right. Yeah, I think they're on a good track as well. And you said Porter Jr. I was thinking of him 
way before you even said his name. But the way their team is kind of constructed reminds me of those New Orleans Hornets teams when Paul was with the franchise, where they'd have their franchise young point guard. They've had some tough rough riders in the front court, a knockdown shooter in Peja Stojakovic. And that's how they made noise in the West. Now, eventually, the Hornets never evolved into something more once they reached their ceiling. Hopefully, Memphis doesn't fall into the same trap down the line. But I do agree in the context of they have a nice squad full of overachievers, but I think it'll all look a lot different when their star players evolve Mm -hmm. into their potential ceilings that they need to be. And once that happens, the sky is the limit for Memphis. This is a team who it doesn't matter whatever of talent comes in, they're always going to stay true to their grit and grind roots. This is a very tough, versatile, grimy team. They're a lot more flashier than those other ones in the past, mainly because of job, but they're going to find ways to get things done. And that's something you can appreciate. And with Golden State, win, lose, or draw, it's been a fabulous leader for Steph Curry. He's gotten his team in the play-in contention at the precipice of a playoff win. Early on, it didn't look like Golden State would sniff the postseason. We're all looking forward to some aspect of Klay Thompson coming back. And Deshaun, the big-time question has been, or the big-time statement that many Warrior fans have said recently is, wait till Klay comes back, wait till Klay comes back. The issue is, I don't know if Klay is going to have two knees to be able to spot up and be effective like he used to be. A Clay Thompson that's no longer what he used to be as a two-way player. That's now a modern-day version of Kyle Korver. Mm. Or Peja Stojakovic when he was with Dallas at his older age. Is that enough for the Warriors to rise from where they're at right now and be a top-four contender out West? Now, <clears throat> we're talking about the same gentleman who, who put the ball on the floor five times and gave us 30. <laughs> hmm. So um, I don't know if, um, I don't know if he'll ever be 100% because generally he just, he's, he's, he's become injury prone, but this is Clay Thompson we're talking about. But outside of Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and, and you know, that three being back together, I don't know if, that supporting cash is going to be able to support them when one of them or when two of them aren't on the court. Like, I think Clay is going to, I think Clay is going to be reminiscent of who he was. I don't think he's going to face major drop off because again, he, he doesn't need the ball in his hands to be efficient. Um, He might suffer on the defensive end as a two-way player for sure. But um, offensively, I don't think, you're going to take much away from him considering that he doesn't have to put the ball on the floor to get what he needs offensively. Um, But again, I think that bench is going to be their ultimate problem um, when those three gentlemen are all on the court together, because I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a thing like when LeBron was in, um, was in Cleveland after um, Kyrie, Kyrie departed. <clears throat> solid team when LeBron is on the court, except we're talking about three other gentlemen. You're talking about Steph, Draymond, and Clay, or even when Clay and Steph are sitting down, Draymond Green can't hold that team on the court by himself. They might, like, I think um, LeBron's, LeBron's calves after post Kyrie was 25 points worse when he's off the court. 
Like, I think they're going to be horrible when one of those three people aren't on the court. Or when when two of those, when when their two are, aren't on the court, I think the bench is going to be the issue. But do I think Clay is going to come back and be who he was? Um, to some level, yeah. To some level, yeah. I think he'll I think he'll be fine. I think the Warriors are going to be fine in that starting lineup as it pertains to how they're managing Clay. For sure, he's going to have to get reacclimated into how Steph plays because they just haven't played together in a minute. But I don't think there's going to be a significant difference between who Clay Thompson is and who he was. Two biggest issues for the Warriors moving forward is are they going to accept James Wiseman as who he is? And Andrew Wiggins has showcased his ability to be the ultimate glue guy on this team. Can he take that next step for when everybody's together, they can live up to their top four billing? Clem, we know Golden State, they were at their best in their primes with the slogan strength in numbers. Their second unit is probably going to be remodeled in some capacity, but they got some nice core guys coming off the bench, Toscano Anderson and Jordan Poole, who I really liked coming out of Michigan in his draft class of Sean Promise. But the key element is James Wiseman. For lack of a better terms, he was practically bullied by the Warrior culture in his rookie season to the point where the injury that happened with his torn meniscus was like a appalling culmination of how tragic his rookie season was under that team that really was looking at him to kind of be an instant mature starter for a team that had postseason aspirations right now. How important is it for Kerr, Curry, and Draymond to, in essence, piece together Wiseman's NBA mentality once again from the canvas, pick it back up, piece it together, and make him feel involved, incorporated, and empowered within the Warrior culture? I think they did that already. And, you know, it's it's something that, he's going to have to figure out for himself. I think from everything I heard about him from all the, the um, Golden State insiders, Nick Friedle, um, Mark Spears, like they've all talked about like his confidence being low and he's been someone who has um, talked down on himself or like, you know, hangs his head after a big mistake. And it's so interesting because when we go back to the beginning of the season, like they were, they were going out of their way to speak positively about him in the media. Like everyone just kept talking. Oh yeah. He's so smart and he's doing this and he, he reads a lot and he does a lot. And I, I feel like a lot of it was like a phony, like it was, it was fraud. It was fraudulent. Cause I think they saw that his confidence and self-esteem was really low from the jump. And I think that was like an initiative from Kerr, like, Hey guys, like pulling guys like Draymond and Curry in and being like, you know, this guy, you know, he has potential, but his self-esteem is low. He hangs his head when things get tough, you know, kind of, you know, give him a push, like don't beat him up too much. But when you're out there talking, when, you know, the, the media asks about him, say good things and, and say, you know, cause they were just, it was like a little extra, like they weren't even talking about LaMelo and, um, and, and Ant that way, you know, and those guys got it jumping out the, uh, at the gate. So I think there was like, so much of a concerted effort to make him feel um, welcomed. And in the NBA, it's not about that. Like you got to get in when you fit in. So for him, I think they have a decision to make now because using him as a leverage to get a big asset, like a Bradley Beal, maybe 
if things don't work out with with um with um Golden State going forward and and depending on where they what they do if they get the Minnesota pick, I think they they can really leverage that. But I think they're fine. I think Clay coming back similar to uh Kevin Durant, you know, although Kevin Durant isn't known for defensive, you know, his defensive capabilities and he doesn't have to, you know, get down and guard wing players as much. Um, I think his transition back to the league on offense is going to be effortless. Like, I think he's not going to miss a beat. I just think he'll miss a step defensively because, um, you know, with that knee getting down and, you know, having a guard primary offensive scores is going to be an issue. But you look at Curry still playing just great. You look at Clay at the two, Wiggs. You know, if Wiggs is your fourth best player, like that's a perfect role for him. Like that's that's probably better, you know. And then you got Draymond. And if Wiseman pans out, I think that'll be he's the X factor there. But I just personally I don't trust him at this point. Um I think they're better off, you know, maybe packaging him. I just don't know who they can trade him for or if they decide to do something with the pick. But I think Toscano Anderson off the bench, Jordan Poole, Eric Pascal, who was having a great year before he got um, injured and had a great rookie campaign as well. Um, and even, uh, you know, Mulder and some of these guys they've developed, like shout out to Kerr because these guys are hooping like the the last game. And I think like the last 10 games of the season, like I, it's funny because it, it's almost like they recruited a bunch of guys who look like Curry and Clay. Cause sometimes I be I literally be out there like is that Kurt like that's Curry like <laughs> all them light skin brothers look like on that team I swear <laughs> but um, I think I think they have a, a solid foundation thus far um, it's just depending on how Wiseman pans out it's gonna you know dictate a lot of what they do and how their future goes yeah I agree as well I think Wiseman getting hurt kind of limits the ability of possibly trading him on draft day but I think. I felt like for me, the turning point was when he didn't go to take the COVID test. And that was kind of when everything started to unravel. Yeah. He got benched in the Clipper game. He did come into the Clipper game later and show flashes. But then after that, it was kind of like he, as well as the team, both started tuning out each other. Throughout the season, you saw Draymond kind of riding him early on, giving him motivation, pep talk. But then eventually, Wiseman kind of looked at Draymond like, you're not really doing anything, so why am I listening to you? And from a numerical standpoint, it was a fair assessment. And you can, I, I can honestly make the point that when Wiseman got hurt and as the season went on without him, the team rallied around each other a lot better because they went back to playing warrior basketball. It's small ball, it's scrappy, uh, tons of screens to set up Curry. And I think Golden State might regret in the next two to three years, probably not taking mellow ball. And I felt like they fell in love with probably taking Wiseman because coming into the draft before Clay got hurt, it felt like the right thing to do. Clay gets injured literally the eve of the draft. And now the organization was at kind of a unique crossroad where it felt like, do we go with our original plan to get the prototypical five that we can uplift into being a more versatile JaVale McGee? Or do we coincide with our small ball culture and get LaMelo Ball who can play beside Curry as well as with, you know, besides Curry as well as without Curry in the second unit, they go Wiseman and we'll see down the line if, you know, they probably should have went Melo, but they are, they succeeded this year by not only being a playoff participant, but also formulating an identity that next year 
they can feel comfortable bringing Clay back into the fold on a minutes restriction, not telling him to do so much early on because they feel comfortable in their young guys developing as talents to take that next step and move forward. Moving on to the next topic, coaches that are probably on the hot seat, depending on the result of this postseason. Uh, there's two coaches that come to my mind, but I'm going to let Deshaun start it off first. Let's talk about the Eastern Conference. Which coach you, do you feel like if the postseason ends in a losing effort in the first round, they're going to be immediately put on the hot seat and have their job in jeopardy? Brad Stevens. Um, and, and I don't think it'll be in – I don't think it'll be a, a unanimous decision for him to be um, – for his for his acumen as a coach to be tested, but I do think that um, he's shown that at the very best he's developmental. He can't handle. Um, he's shown that he can't handle having a superstar on his team. Like he needs he he has to he has to have um, a dynasty Spurs type of team, like. Uh, he, he has to have great players, but he has to have great players that also knows that they need everybody else on that team to be successful. Like Brad Stevens isn't that coach. I made this analogy uh, <laughs> a few days ago. Brad Stevens, um, he could um, he can whip an Altima. He could, he could whip a Nissan Altima to the wheels fall off, but he can't win a race in a Lamborghini. And that just and with it, what I mean by that is like Jason Tatum is a is is a fringe superstar if he if 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 he's not there already to some people um, he's going to be the leader of that team he's going to be the one with the ball in his hands which means that's going to be um, less ball movement in general on that team which I think his system needs to prevail which is how they got to um, where they were when Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were very young. They're still very young, but, you know, when they're, when they're fresh in the league. Um, what's that, uh, three um, ECFs in, the, in, what, four years? I think that, um, that cohesion that they had to say um, when they were there is a testament to how great his coaching is when you don't have any egos on the team. Um, we see how he handled Kyrie. Um, a very ball dominant superstar who, you know, can, can do what he needs to do on the court, but isn't necessarily the passer as a point guard he would, he would like. Uh, so I think it's a, I think, I don't know if he can manage egos and if it's proven that he can't do that with either by the end of this year or by the end of next season, I think he'll be gone. But again, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's an acquisition that people are re really I don't think that's a something that the Celtics are really willing to give up because there's a few teams in the East because he'll have a job in five minutes if he leaves. And I think it'll be a long day for the Celtics once that happens. Danny H has come out and said recently that Stevens isn't on the hot seat, but like you said, Deshaun is something to look towards next year if the same result happens especially since brooklyn doesn't look like they're going anywhere and milwaukee and philly have their core for the next year for sure so you're gonna have to be competing against those three guys 
Ainge has acknowledged that he's going to remodel this team completely in the offseason. We do know Tatum is going to be an integral part of that remodelization. He'll be the focal point of the new team. Uh, the pieces he'll have around him remains to be seen. And Clem, you're a coach that you feel like is on the hot seat, Eastern Conference, if their team falls out of the first round of the playoffs. Well, I think we missed a lot of – I don't think Brad Stevens is even on the so – I have a list, and I'm going um, <laughs> to – there's a few people, you know. Um, and I, I even have a, a player and a GM. So, uh, number one on this list, and I think we all missed the bill here, is Doc Rivers. All right. If Doc Rivers chokes again, he's done. Okay? <laughs> he's done. All right. Now, obviously, you know, will they lose to Washington? Probably not. But in a situation where it, it did, the, the, according to the question, who would, you know, who's in a hot, hot seat with the loss, especially in the first round, is Doc Rivers. I think if they don't, if they don't even, if they got in the second round, I would even say Doc Rivers would be on the hot seat. I don't know about fire, but it, for sure, losing the first round, Doc Rivers. Number two, Ty Lue. That that Clippers team, they bet everything. Their their draft picks are all in. Um, Paul George, they paid him. Kawhi's uh, unrestricted free agent, but I mean, he's probably going to resign because you know he's happy in LA. Um, they've used all their draft picks, like they all their eggs are in this basket. And if especially if they lose to to Luca, um. It's Steve Ballmer wants to win now. He's paid all this money. You know, we talked, we talked about Indiana, we talked about Memphis, all these teams that just don't want to spend money and are content with being, you know, mediocre. Here's a, a billionaire, you know, of course, he, he has money to spend, but he he put all his chips in a circle and said, look, whatever we need to do, let's get it done. You know, so they need they need to not only get out of the first round, but they need to get to the conference finals with with a guy. And Paul George, your second player has been the star player on two Eastern Conference Finals teams who were two games away from finals two times, all right? Your, your top guy is a two-time finals MVP, has won it on, in the West and in the East, and has played in the most, one of the most historic uh, um, franchises and under one of the most historic coaches in Greg Popovich. They need to get it done. So I think Ty Lue is number two on my list. Number three... Coach Bud in Milwaukee. If Miami, if Miami spanks him again, it's time, it's time to let loose. You know, it's time for him to go because um, you know, the last two years they've been playing the same way. They finally changed it up. They brought in Drew Holiday, brought in um, um Tucker, who I think is gonna, you know, make a difference this year. But Miami's a tough team. And, you know, they have culture and you know, they they be punking cats. So if if Milwaukee goes in there and gets punked again, Giannis is already, you know, he signed his deal, you know, and they're kind of locked in similar to the Clippers. They, they've done all the, all they can do. So if, if Bud doesn't get it done, like no Eastern conference finals in three years, he's gone. And the last one I have Terry Stotts, Dame Lillard came out and has already said, you know, passive aggressively, like, you know, I'm ready to win. I'm, you know, in my early thirties and, you know, I don't know how many, how much miles I have left on my legs. And Terry Stotts is a good coach, but they got to the Western Conference Finals once, got swept, 
And all the other times they've been out in the first or second round. So um, Dame's in his final years of greatness. McCollum has been, you know, good, but not a, he's probably the third best player on a championship team, not the second. Nurk has been hurt. Um, I forgot the, the power forward name. Um, Zach Collins has been hurt. Norman Powell's a good uh, addition, but he's an undersized three. Like, you know, the last thing they need is another undersized guy on the wing. So um, I think Terry Stotts, if he doesn't get it done, he's done a great job. But for them to go to the next level, they're either going to have to trade McCollum or fire Stotts. Now, I don't think I'm coming to your team to shine. Okay. Like I said, I had a hot take earlier. I think that not obviously Spo is not, there's nothing to worry about, but I think that there can be a lot of turmoil if Miami gets out in the first round. Now, like I talked about in the group chat in 2006, Miami won the championship with uh, um, Stan Van Gundy. Yeah. Uh, not sorry. Uh, not Stan. Um, Pat Riley. Pat, Pat Riley was coaching that year. He was. Van I thought SVG was, was gone the following year. I thought now, if I remember correct, I thought it was Stan. No, what happened was Stan got fired because of Shaq. And Shaq said, Pat, I want you to come off the couch and coach us. And he did to a championship. So, yeah. Okay. Well, okay, that changes things a little bit. However, they have a culture there, and they want – they want to keep that going. And we've mm-hmm. seen Pat Riley is not scared to shake it up in the past. And I think that Jimmy Butler leading that team in the, the, the bubble to the finals, I think that was great for, for him personally, for his career. But I don't think it was good for the team. Because even this year, I feel like, I don't, you know, Jimmy works harder than, than anybody. But I think there's a... He he kind of feels overvalued from his point of view. And I think that um, you know, just just kind of seeing the games he's missed this year, you don't get don't get me wrong, he's been injured, but I don't think there are games he would have missed in the past. And I think there's kind of this sense, like, oh yeah, we're the Eastern Conference Finals champs. Like we're we're gonna get back. You might not. So if they right. lose in this first round, I think there's going to be a lot of analyzing like, okay, what did we do wrong all year? Cause I feel like all year they've just been like coasting like, Oh yeah. Like we'll get back there. We're not worried. We're, we're going to pick it up when it's time. And they tried to do that. And now they're playing, you know, Milwaukee, who's one of the best teams in the East, you know, and had they picked up the slack earlier, they wouldn't be here. So, like I said, I think Spo, he's solidified. He's not going anywhere, but I think that, if they do lose, they're going to start looking back like, wow, should we have traded for James Harden? Should we have made different moves earlier in the season? Is Jimmy Butler, like, really our number one guy? Like, or was that a fluke? You know, and, you know, Jimmy thinking highly of himself, he's probably going to feel like, no, I can lead this team and I deserve all the praise that, you know, I'm getting. So I, I'm interested to see what's going to happen there. And then I think, I don't think uh, Brad Stevens is on the hot seat. I think Danny Ainge will potentially step down if no 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 i'm sorry i, I think uh, so <laughs> i think he will potentially step down if because he he's made some remarks over the course of the season that like left me scratching my head like hmm okay because he's taking the blame for a lot of this and as he should because it is his fault 
And I think I think Stevens will eventually move on from that team, but I don't think he's on the hot seat. I think Ainge is the one who will probably depart before uh, Stevens does. No, Danny Ainge can say whatever he wants about not wanting to leave Brad Stevens. Jerry Jones said he wasn't trade. No, not. Um, I'm about to say wrong sport. Yeah, yeah. No, Jerry Jones said he wasn't trading Jason Garrett for anything in the world. Where is he now? Gone. So, so Danny Ainge can say whatever. He, Danny Ainge can say whatever he wants <laughs> about the decision about moving, um, about moving Brad Stevens. But I think by the end of this season or next season, it's going to be what it is. Now, when we're talking about Miami, <clears throat> I agree with you that um, my uh, <laughs> my good team had an out of body experience um in the playoffs last year. Uh, at that time, they were the, the lowest ranked seed in NBA history to make a finals. Um, and I do think um, Jimmy Butler was a very much important piece in that as their best player. But I think his deficiencies offensively um, were masked by the excellent play of the younger players that we had in Tyler Hero and a Duncan Robinson. Um, you know, we had Jay Crowder who provided a little bit of size and grit um, at the four. Um, but we don't have we don't have Jay Crowder anymore. We have Trevor Ariza, who's a who's a very good player, and our shooters are shooting uh, aren't shooting what they were shooting last season. Uh, Tyler Hero isn't isn't you know providing as much offensively. Neither is Duncan Robinson. So I do think um, while I do think Jimmy Butler's praise is well deserved, I do think he he got a little bit of the uh, he's overvaluing himself as a player. And obviously, great players do tend to overvalue themselves. But when it comes to he's gonna ask for a little bit of money soon. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, he, he says he do that. Right. He says he loves his franchise and with all, you know, with all due intent, I believe him. But you know, they always say that if you're good enough to do anything, don't do it for free. So, you know, I feel like he's got I think I feel like you know he's here on a discount right now. But essentially if if um if they get back to where something comparable um, this playoff, like if they get past the books, maybe get kicked in the second round. Um, I don't think that his praise isn't undeserved, but I do think, you know, they shouldn't jump to give him, you know, what he's probably going to ask for. Yeah. You guys were able to touch base on the East and the West and want to touch base on everything that you guys said with Stevens. I do feel like he's in a, Tough spot because the team that he has right now is a microcosma of failed draft selections by Danny Ainge. Now, usually when you're a good team that has a solid young core of superstars, you utilize draft picks down the line in the first or second round to fill out your bench. Their bench consists of Tremont Waters, who probably has more G League appearances than NBA appearances. Romeo Lankford. Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana, who underperformed as a freshman with the Hoosiers and is a rotational guy for the Celtics in today's game. And you have Carson Edwards, who was a superstar at Purdue for four years at the pro level. He barely gets PT. And then the aforementioned Taco Fall was more of a human mascot than a legit player for the franchise. So those are your selections that were supposed to make up your second unit. Your second unit is garbage. And outside of Peyton Pritchard, who's solid, that is it. 
and that is not good. And so now you have Boston fans that are like, we don't have a bench. Also, they don't have a consistent five man because Robert Williams can't stay healthy. Tristan Thompson at this stage of his career is undersized and is declining. He still gives you great effort, as we saw when they played the Wizards. He basically dominated inside, but he's not going to defend a Joel Embiid consistently in a seven-game series. So that's the predicament Brad's in this year, but the statement is right. He needs ideal pieces that pieces that are going to coincide within his system more so than a star caliber player that can elevate his system into a game plan that's situated around this premier player that can elevate your team to the playoffs. Now, for the Bucks, you're right. Bud is in a spot where if they don't beat the Miami Heat, he's gone. But the franchise has also said if they don't get out the East, he's gone. Newsflash, they're not getting out the East. So I think <laughs> it's the best case scenario for Milwaukee to pivot. You're going to be in a season where your core is locked up. So whoever comes in next year is going to have that same core that Bud's had for years. And maybe they can sprinkle in an identity that's more situated around Giannis being a back-to-the-basket player and probably finding somebody else to run the point. My issue with getting Drew Holiday was I like Drew Holiday as a two-way guard. I don't think ideally he's a point. So – I think however they can prioritize getting a point in the future is something that they should consider. It won't be a Chris Paul type player, but if they're able to add a Rondo S player in free agency somewhere in that capacity, that can play immense wonders because it'll help Giannis and Middleton get easier shots because as individual talents off the dribble, they still have to work way harder than their all-star contemporaries to get a premier look because they're not the nuanced ball handlers that those guys are. And with Terry Stotts on Portland, like you said, Blazers have been playing ISO ball since Damian Lillard has been on the team. And they're in a very unique spot where they're going to be Denver, mainly because Denver is shorthanded. Jamal Murray won't be there. It's a battle of the backcourts in essence. And I feel like they have an explosive backcourt to where, how is Denver going to match that? I like Michael Porter Jr. as a talent long-term. But he is a streaky player, and I think a lot of that coincides with the fact that the game plan that they have for him is to play more like a Middleton than a Durant. not saying he's a Durant-esque player, but they don't really put a lot of elements on his plate to create offense. Jokic, as talented as he is, I still think he's teetering within the dimension of being passive-aggressive and being aggressive. He's going to have to be ultra-aggressive to beat a Portland offense that is explosive. And big issue with Mike Malone is I think he's ran his course as a coach. And I think once the Nuggets underachieve again with Malone at the helm, that's something that they have to consider as well. Maybe they need to pivot from him, but Stotts is going to beat the Nuggets. And as crazy (laughs) as this sounds, they're going to have home court against the Lakers where ideally, depending on where the Lakers are right now, if it doesn't go their way and they lose to LA, the organization may feel validated in terms of letting Stotts go because they could sell it like, look, we had home court against a Laker team that's a show of itself. We should have beat them. I think anything less than a conference final berth means Stotts has to go. This is Portland's best team in the Damian Lillard era. This is their most complete team in the Damian Lillard era. Everything Mm -hmm. is here for them to, to achieve success. Guys are relatively healthy. They have to get it done. If they don't, their time has come. It's over. 
And that's where it is at this point with these teams, Portland, Milwaukee, and also Miami want to touch base on them as well. The worst thing that happened to the Heat was they were at a point in the season where it looked like they would overtake the Hawks or the Knicks for the 4-5 spot. If they would have been a 4-5 team, they probably would have got to the conference finals because now you're drawing a winnable matchup with the Knicks, who is basically a resemblance of them, but they're just a better version of the Knicks because they have superstar caliber players that are rough riders too. Or you get the Hawks, young, immature team, not there yet. And then after that, you get Philly, and you have the physicality, the griminess, the experience, and the mental fortitude that challenge Philly, pushed him to the brink. The defensive scheme also to neutralize and expose Ben Simmons' limitations as a scorer. And then, boom, just like that, you're in the conference final against Brooklyn. You give Brooklyn a tough fight. You lose to them. It feels a lot better because it's like they got back to the conference finals. They just ran into a juggernaut. Now they're going to play Milwaukee again. And this is a Milwaukee team that built their franchise to beat the Heat. And that's usually what happens. You build your team to beat the team that beat you, usually. And that's what they did. I don't expect them to beat Milwaukee. I don't think it will be a death sentence, but it will be a what if once this season's over because they'll regret not getting Harden when they literally could have traded Harden, traded for Harden at the expense of just letting go one of their shooters, not both, just one hero. They over relied on the ceiling that they reached last year is thinking it would duplicate itself this year. It hasn't. And now it's got them to the point where we'll all see again in this playoffs that they kind of are who we thought they were a solid gritty playoff team. That's going to peak in the first round. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I mean, you talked about the, the the last few games like that Hawks, Knicks, and, and Miami. I think that's that's why I said I think that's like going to really impact Jimmy because they were playing a lot better. And then you remember he made those comments about Bam out of bio after the game too, about like him, you know, not being soft and and you know, taking more shots in the paint and bullying guys opposed to like taking jump shots. Bam comes back the next game and hits a game winner taking a jump shot so mm-hmm. um i think that was something i was like you know kind of got swept under the rug because they were ascending at the time and then um you know tyler here has been hurt all year but then if you remember his rookie campaign wasn't even that good like in the bubble he ascended and played way beyond anyone's expectations even jason tatum came out and didn't say necessarily his name but was like you know some guys you know like we didn't get to the the easy conference finals and you know some guys were playing like way better than they they should have because of because of the bubble and i think that um i think it was like i can't remember it was one of these last three games jimmy jimmy decided not to play and you know whether it's you know legit injury or not you know if you're fighting to be the number 4 seed and get home court i think you make that choice to play like that's the most important thing because if you don't get it like being the four seed and playing uh, the Knicks or the Hawks opposed to being the six seed and playing the Bucks, that's a different, complete world. You know, that's a much like, more winnable. Matchup. Much more winnable. And, you know, ha- had Oladipo not gotten hurt, I think it would have changed things a bit too. But I just feel like when you look at the stretch, I feel like they were just, you know, a little bit smelling they, smelling they butt, you know. And like, okay, we'll pick it up when we're ready. We'll pick it up when we're ready. And then they started picking it up. But then it's like, 
there's other teams that are playing good too. So it's like, and then y'all not a hundred percent healthy as well, you know? So mm-hmm. I think, I think they're going to look back after they go home in the first round and, you know, be like, Hey, you know, where did we go wrong? And I think a lot of it's going to be like, well, you know, Jimmy missed a lot of, he was good when he played, but he missed a lot of games and were these injuries games that he could have played probably so, but he felt like he didn't need to play them because they'll pick it up when they, when they needed to. And and it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The lone bright side for the team for Miami is it's pretty clear Bam Adebayo took the next step. Mm-hmm. So that's a good sign, especially in a year where your younger core guys, Hero, Robinson, they all kind of flaked. So it's important and ideal to see a guy in Adebayo who you paid a max deal to take that next step and become more of a versatile big on the block. However, I do think long-term, they're going to have to get an impactful creator on the perimeter that can make a shot. Ideally, Bradley Beal would be solid. They're not going to get that. And so I was teasing it to Darius to his horror. I can see the Heat <laughs> ideally copying a DeMar DeRozan. Now, it seems insane now because it's like DeRozan plays no defense. He's not Heat culture, but he is probably the best player on the market that he can get that could provide a missing link to their backcourt because they wanted Oladipo to be that guy. And at this point, Oladipo's damaged goods that can't stay healthy. You get a guy in DeRozan who could come in and do what Oladipo was expected to do at a higher level because he's available and he's healthy to Miami that could pay dividends. Now, granted, he'd be in his upper 30s, so you have a backcourt of two 30-year-olds that are up in their years, but they provide a semblance of productivity within the backcourt that that team's been itching to have. And they're probably going to need moving forward since Robinson is probably going to be gone because he's going to want 20 to $25 million per year can't keep everybody and compromising Robinson's shooting ability for DeRozan's multi-dimensional scoring ability from a two, one level is something that he could probably go for and deliver on in the near future. The, the so last, last quick point, just jumping in. That just goes to show you like, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to, to, to bash your team, but like how, like we 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 just talked about all the the moving pieces. They value Tyler Hero so much, and this guy's not. They have. I feel like they have no aspirations for him to be a starter anytime soon. Bringing in DeRozan is going to push him further back on the bench. He's not going to play point guard, so you you still have none. You still have Dragic. All right, so those guys are, are going to play point over. But Dragic him. is Dragic is old. Yeah, but he's still a better point guard than Tyler Hero. So it's for like. Sure. You, you're not willing to make the big trade to get rid of these guys, but you're looking at the market. Duncan Robinson is going to get paid because Berton's got a bunch of money and Duncan Robinson's younger and, you know, probably, I mean, you can make the case that he's a better player at this point already. Um, and then Tyler Hero is a guy who's not, you don't even look to start. Like he's probably not even your sixth man. So why not get rid of these guys for a guy like James Harden? They I don't know. The ball. They did drop the ball. I don't know we what Pat was out. thinking. <laughs> We're going to find out. I don't know what Pat was thinking. Probably the came out. Yeah, he didn't think that James Harden would, would keep the culture the way it is. And I mean, look, can't have Sometimes, everything. right. Sometimes got to stray away from the culture and get the impact player to get you the championship. Is it about winning? I mean, that's ultimately right. what it is. And so 
like I said, the rumor was you weren't going to you wouldn't have had to trade both of your shooters. You would have to give up on one. The guy on the rookie deal, Hero, they refused because to do now so. Because now that you're saying it now, you know, Harden wanted to get out of there anyway. But mm-hmm. I think um, – but the Rockets weren't going to give him away for cheap. Absolutely not. Like, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a generational player. He's a, he's a once-in-a-lifetime um, player. So, you know, I don't, think, I don't think you're getting away with just giving away Tyler Hero. No, I agree. It would have not just been Hero, but it would have been Hero – Precious Tua, yeah, some picks, yeah, but Duncan would have still been there. Value was a lot higher than it is right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Last but not least, going to touch base on X factors for every series that has been established. Going to start in the Eastern Conference, Washington versus Philly, one through eight. What's the X factor in that series? Who you think will prove his worth? and help be the impactful force to win in the first round? It's hard because for Philly, they are a great team. Um, for lack of better terms, Washington has has gotten on a roll. But I don't think their role is ever going to be sufficient enough to overcome um, – to overcome – the 76ers uh, defense and Ben Simmons, who's a who's a defensive player of the year candidate. And, um, you know, just their shooting. Like, come on, I know, I know we love Russell Westbrook and I know we love Bradley Beal, but Russell Westbrook is one of the worst <laughs> shooting point guards we've ever, we've ever seen. Um, Bradley Beal can't do it by himself. And the 76ers, nobody on that team has to do it by themselves. So I just think, I, just, I don't think there is an X factor in that series. I just think that it's a gross overmatch. Yeah, I, I would say in that series, um, Rui Hachimura, I think, is the X factor. Um, I think what he can, if he can add to what Russ and Bill can contribute like because those guys can give you you know Russ is going to go for triple doubles and his he wins 70 percent of his games when he uh, gets triple doubles so um that's that I guess you can add that in their favor if you will but I think having that third guy being able to help Beal and and Russ because I'm sure they're going to double one of them at, at some point in the series and then him too being like I think he's going to get matched up with um, Ben Simmons a lot. And Ben Simmons' inability to shoot is going to get tested. Now, unfortunately, Wizards are not a good defensive team. So um, I think they're going to really struggle there. But they do have some athletic bigs. And um, Anthony Gill, I believe his name is. And then um, Robin Lopez isn't athletic. But Russ is making this guy look like a, a freaking starter in the league. Like he was damn near out of the league not too long ago. So um, I think him and then what's the other guy that Daniel Gafford. So they have three solid, you know, big seven, almost seven foot guys who can come in and just, you know, get fouls if need be on and bid. So I, my game plan for them would just be to make Ben Simmons score. And I think if Rui can do a good enough job on Tobias Harris and, you know, hold his fourth down, putting up 15 to 20 points a game in the series, it can make it competitive, but that's a long <laughs> that's a long uh gamble though. 
I like mean, that's... he averages <laughs> about 14 a game, so, you know. No, not his points, but I'm talking about, you know, the over-under that you're talking about. Like, this series could be over in five. I think four, personally, but <laughs> they just don't – they don't play enough defense. Like, now, if they had their full team, if 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 Brian never got hurt and if uh, um, Alexa, uh, whatever his name is, the, the first-round pick they got, like, if those two guys were there the whole season along with what they have now, mm-hmm. you could – they would still lose, but it would be a much better competition. And, and the Bradley Beals, you know, he's, he's limping half the time, so – yeah. His hamstring is going to play a huge part, but, you know, I don't know. I think if they had a good defensive scheme and made Brad, um, uh, Brandon, um, Ben Simmons shoot, we'd see, but they don't stand a chance. Yeah, for me, when it came to X factors, I was decided between Matisse Thibault and Maxi, And I'm going to go with Maxi because, like you said, Simmons' inability to shoot is going to showcase itself throughout the game as bad as, Philadelphia is defensive, not Philadelphia, Washington is defensively. But when they go to their second unit and Maxie's there, he's a guy that can handle the basketball, create for others, but also score with much more fervor because of his ability to shoot and drive and finish around the rim. So expect him to kind of emerge and be a type of individual where after the series, they do dust up on the Wizards in four, but guys are probably going to remember and be like, man, Maxie was an impactful player for the Sixers off the bench as a second unit guard and somebody to look forward to deep down the line for Philadelphia's playoff run. Next up, Brooklyn, Boston, another mismatch, but X factor in that series, Deshaun, that you see probably showcasing himself and being the impactful entity to decide the series. Um, I think that cohesion between Jalen Brown and uh, not Jalen Brown, but um, Jason Tatum and Kimba Walker is um, going to be very important because again, they had it rolling in that second half against the, uh, the wizards. Now we both know that Kimba Walker is a streaky shooter, you know, great player, but you know, he can't always, he, those type of games aren't always a commonality for him. So we'll have to see. Um, that. Yeah, I think that their ability to bounce off of each other as players again, I, I don't think a lot a lot of things a lot of these series I don't think is going to be determining on one player that we're not personally about personally be personally thinking about. I just think it's um, going to be a determining factor of um, how well you can bounce off of another player in in your certain situations. Like the Nets, we've seen them on the court nine times this season, all three of them. Um, and, you know, they played very well. You know, James Harden got 14 assists and no turnovers. Um, you know, Kyrie can go for 40 when he wants to. And, you know, Kevin Durant, it's going in. Like, <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a measure of how well Jason Tatum can be efficient and not take ill-advised shots and Kimba Walker's ability to – facilitate the offense well, even though he's very ball dominant and get his shots up and knock them down. They can get, they could probably get a game. Yeah, I'll say, um, I think Evan Fournier is the X factor in this series because Brooklyn is offense, offense, offense. And um, I think, you know, Kemba is a poor man's Kyrie. I think if you, I mean, 
a little disrespectful, but then again, it's true. I think Tatum, you know, you can make the comparison is at this point in his career is maybe a poor man's KD. And mm. I mean, Harden versus Evan Fournier is not even close to each other, but right. I think the only chance they have is if he's scoring at a high rate because, you know, those three guys, you know, right now they 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 don't have that much cohesion, but you know, defensively, both teams are not gonna have too much of a factor. I don't think so. It's gonna be basically who can score the most points, and um, Tatum is gonna need you know not only Kimba but um, Evan Fournier to to put up twenty to twenty five points a night. Yeah, for me, Brooklyn. I'd say Joe Harris. He's kind of been their X factor all year, especially mm-hmm. when all three of their all-stars have been on the floor together. And against Boston, pretty sure Stevens is going to go out of his way and focus a lot of his energy on KD and Harden. Kyrie will probably get one-on-one type of defensive activity with his good buddy, Marcus Smart, which means there's going to be times where those guys are missing shots. And or if they're not missing shots, Joe Harris is going to be the last line of offense that's wide open in a corner behind the three point line or at the top of the key. And his ability to hit shots in consistent rates is going to make sure that this series is possibly over as quick as possible. There's going to be some games throughout this series where Harris is going to hit six threes and we look up and he has 20 to 25 points and a lot of that can be from his three-point shots or his ability to move it out the basketball and get easy layups near the basket because of his presence and his threat from three so he's going to be the x factor in this series he's going to be the guy when it's all said and done he's going to probably have an 18 point per game average in the first round and be an influential part in this team disposing of boston as quick as possible in the east next up milwaukee miami deshaun your favorite team going against a team that they disposed last year. What is the ultimate X factor in this series? Go. Um, <clears throat> Clem, don't look at me weird, but um, it's, um, <laughs> it's the point guards, man. It's the point guards. Um, we know that Giannis can, you know, do what he does. We know Chris Middleton, we know Chris Middleton has done what he's done. Um, but the new pieces that well, that new piece in holiday is what is what they're banking on uh, coming through for them against Miami because um, Goran averaged uh, what 25 points in the, in the postseason, And, you know, they're banking on drew holiday containing that. So I think it, I think it, I think holiday is going to have to be the one that they need to pull them over the hump in terms of getting Goran Goran's scoring out of the way. So I think they're gonna make they're gonna make Miami lean on Jimmy and Bam that entire series, but I think it's gonna be a I think it's gonna be a battle of coaching as well because like <laughs> like we had their number in coaching in the playoffs last season with shutting down Giannis and you know we you have to live with what Middleton gives you but we knew that it wasn't gonna be enough to overcome what we were giving them so you know coaching is gonna be very important but I think Drew Holiday is. Uh, going to be what they need to pull them over the hump if they're going to win this series definitively. Yeah, I agree. I think Drew Holiday is the X factor. But I changed my mind. I think Giannis is. <laughs> when it comes down to it, because, you know, Drew Holiday, 
you know, he he's he's one of the guys who, you know, came in and, and is going to play a big part in helping Giannis. But, you know, the playoffs are all about stars, man. And when it comes down to it, when they build that brick wall, Giannis is going to have to take them over the hump. And if I don't care how good Drew Holiday and, and everyone else plays, if they start building a wall and Giannis can't do what he does, it's going to affect everyone on that team offensively and defensively. So I, Giannis has done a great job of uh, shooting more threes this, this season and even like developing a bit of handles and, you know, a little step back jumper. And for me, that that's, that's where it's at. If he can score that uh, right around the basket, those um, fadeaway jumpers and little step backs he's been doing, like, I don't even care about the three ball, but when they, when he drives hard right or left and they, he gets cut off instead of, picking up his dribble and pivoting and trying to force up a layup. If he can, you know, do that drawback step and and pull up and make, you know, four or five of those, you know, over the course of the series, especially down the stretch, that's going to take them over the hump. Yeah. All you guys are right. I'm going to take a twist and say Bobby Portis. And the reason why I'm going to say Bobby Portis is he's been influential for the Bucks coming off the bench. I was one of the big, downers on the Bucks bench coming into the year feeling like they didn't have one but Portis has made influential steps forward to be a positive influence with their second unit and if he's playing productive there is a world where ideally to combat Miami's small ball lineup where Bam's at the five you could play Giannis at the five Portis at the four and Middleton at the three and that presence can be impactful and empowering if Portis presents a stretch for ability in terms of hitting consistent jump shot from mid-range or beyond the arc. So his ability to be an offensive threat and active on the boards and around the glass with the second unit that allows his minutes to integrate with the starting lineup can be influential. And that's why I label him as an X factor. Ideally, we know the importance of PJ Tucker and Drew Holiday. They're here for defensive abilities. But X factor in terms of what he could provide in terms of a wrinkle offensively and defensively, I've got Bobby Portis. Finally, in the East, four-five matchup that's unique: the New York Knicks and the Atlanta Hawks. Deshaun, we're looking at two teams that weren't in the playoffs last year. This is a new postseason experience for many parties involved. Who's the X factor in this intriguing four-five matchup? <laughs> it's Derrick Rose. <laughs> it's Derrick Rose. Um, Darius is would, would would jump for joy when he heard me say that, but uh, it's Derrick Rose. Um, you know, Derrick Rose can come off the bench and um provide great facilitation and offense for that team, especially um and and lifting the load from uh Randall if he's on the court with him, because you know Julius Randall has done a lot for that team this season. So I think um Derrick Rose is going to be that extra uh, oomph off the bench that they're going to need to win this series. And I just don't think that um, the Hawks are going to be able to compete defensively. Ice tray. <laughs> Ice tray. Ice tray, Cam. That's <laughs> the X factor. You know why? Because he's their best player. And the offense is geared around him. He the team goes as he goes. You see, Trey Young has been one of the most anticipated. He's going to be one of the most anticipated um, young stars in the league, and 
a lot of people have wondered how he's going to be because he is a smaller guy and he's not good on defense. So a lot of teams, they, you know, a lot of people feel like he will be targeted. So how they target him and how he reacts to that is very important, but even more importantly, his ability to draw fouls on offense opens up a lot for that Hawks team. And if he can, if he can get that um, to the free throw line at the rate that he does during the regular season, that's going to be the difference. And his, his ability to be a star down the stretch, make big shots and take the heart out of the New York city defense. That's what it's going to be. Ice tray. Ice tray is going to make his debut. (laughs) And I'm telling you like, Similar to Curry in that in that Denver series when they started to make their push in about 2014. I straight I say about to let the world know. He's about to put the world on ice and let them know. This could be the moment for Young where his playoff success leading to an Atlanta victory that allows them to move on to the semis could allow people to now have a conversation when we talk about Trey Young and Luca. If Trey Young, you know, he's moving on in the playoffs and Luka's still stuck in the first round, yeah. people can now be like, Young better Stop than Luka. We'll see. Stop we'll it. see. It, I mean, it can happen. It. Yeah, it's far fetched. Luka's obviously better fed. than him. But, but yeah, you can if – you, if you can take the team further, you know, hey, he's he going to have that in his belt. Yeah. I think the biggest X factor in this series is going to be R.J. Barrett. Um, yeah, we know what so. Julius Randle has been able to bring to the table for the Knicks in terms of having – a career year. I call it Siakam-like. It's the same year Siakam had the year prior. Randall's having that this year for them. But I say R.J. Barrett because the biggest thing for Barrett in his sophomore season was finding a way to be proficient and efficient from three. He's been able to do that. Being able to be a two-way talent, being able to be two-way productive defensively, he's done that to the point where Thibodeau isn't yanking him out of games, which he's shown a tendency to do to his younger players. For Barrett, he's going to have a multitude of mismatches, in my opinion, because when you look at Atlanta's wings or guard play opposite of him, they have guys in potentially DeAndre Hunter, Solomon Hill, Tony Snell that could be there and have defensive acumen and abilities, but there's a chance he'll probably be able to win those matchups. And if he's not winning those matchups, there's going to be chances where he's going to be wide open in a corner or at the top of the key being able to hit a crucial three. And so his ability to be proactive defensively, make open shots offensively, and be an aggressive and assertive scorer. Because we know coming into the series, Nick McMillan, when Wally were known as a defensive guru, he's going to make sure his game plan is centered around neutralizing Randall, which means your guard play is going to have to be productive and elite. So we know what Derrick Rose is going to bring to the table as a creator and facilitator. But Barrett's ability to hit open shots and be productive as a slasher is going to be why I think he'll be an X factor that can help the Knicks move to the second round. And our West, one three matchup, Utah. We don't know who they'll play as of right now, Memphis or Golden State. So we can touch on that later. But Lakers, Suns, two to seven matchup. The X factor for you, Deshaun, is who? It's <laughs> it's AD. <laughs> it's AD. AD is the X factor. I'm always gonna say it. Be who we know you can be and who we've seen you be. Be aggressive. LeBron is not gonna do it. I mean, he can do it, but 
LeBron, LeBron isn't always going to be your number one option. Not saying that, you know, he, he, he can't or rightfully shouldn't be, but as a, as a, you're the biggest team in the NBA and you play and you, you're playing small. You're you, like AD is AD playing like he's six, three. We, we can't, we can't have that from AD. And I think AD is going to be the X factor in winning this series because who's, who's holding him on, on the block? Nobody. And, you know, generally it's a tough matchup when AD is down there for anybody. So we, AD, AD just got to be aggressive. The X factor is AD. Well, I'm going to switch up the, the letters and say DA and DeAndre Aiden. <laughs> um, the, the Suns have no rim protection whatsoever. Um, their backup bigs are Darius, uh, Dario Saric and Frank Kaminsky. Both are, you know, guys who are way better on offense and defense and play, you know, from beyond the arc most of the time. So Kaminsky will give a fight, but he doesn't stand a chance against AD or um, either one of the ADs, actually. Um, DeAndre, <laughs> has, DeAndre Aiden has taken a, a, a big step this year defensively, but I think him having to deal with um, um, both ADs at some point th- or throughout the entire series, he's going to have to manage his foul trouble, which he hasn't been terrible at, but he also hasn't been great at this season. So um, his ability to not only score on offense, you know, help out uh, Book and CP where they may, but being able to you know, make things hard for both ADs will be um, what can help them, you know, um, not only make this uh, series competitive, but help them win. Um, and also, I think that um, um, he just needs to have that confidence because similar to Ice Trey, I think this is this is a series that could help him really get the confidence he needs to, like, be that you know, second guy next to Devin Booker moving forward. Because if he goes up against AD and sees, like, like I can play with this cat. Like, you know, maybe he does give him, you know, 25 a game. But he's, you know, getting in him and making it hard and blocking his shots here and putting up double-doubles. Like, I think that that's a huge stepping stone for him moving forward. Um, but he's going to have to play a big role because they that all they have is him on defense, you know. And you if said, not, you said <laughs> You said Phoenix and six? <laughs> nah, 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 nah. I think, I think LA is going to win in five or six. Yeah, I agree with Clem. DeAndre Aiden's the X factor. He's the reason why Lakers in six. He is no <laughs> type of defensive resistance against Anthony Davis. That 40 plus point game you were talking about AD having some weeks ago, that was against the Suns against DeAndre Aiden. And AD just came back literally that week. So, my issue with Aiden is he's been very underwhelming so far as a number one overall pick. His flaws coming out of Arizona were settles for a lot of jump shots, um, not the most dynamic when it comes to being a post scorer. Defensively, has the intangibles and the capability to be a rim protector. Chooses not to be because he's a step slow, a lot lazy a little bit at times. And so far in his career, his best moments have been when he was on PEDs. So at this point with Aiden, he kind of is who he is. He is a slight double-double type guy, but because he's very limited offensively and isn't a ideal rim protector that you want him to be, he's kind of stuck in a unique spot where you're right. 
we know with Phoenix, their backcourt is going to give them everything that they have. Paul, Cerebral, Booker's a bucket. That third guy has to be Aiden. And if he's going to give you eight, ten points a game, say your prayers. That's not going to be enough. If you're a guy at this level who's not a defensive stopper as a center, you better be giving some type of productivity offensively. If you kind of can't do both, then your presence as a middleman is null and void. You don't give anything. So for Aiden, he's an X factor because if he can at least be some type of an offensive threat to at least get AD in foul trouble, it changes the whole complexion of the game. Because now Gasol or Drummond is at the five, and Aiden can do a lot more damage against them because although he's slow-footed, he's younger, he's athletic, and he's more versatile than those guys. But if he's just a presence out there who gets in foul trouble himself, now that brings in Kaminsky and Sarge as your ideal five men at the center spot, they're not going to give you anything. And that's really the determining factor in this series. The weakness that Phoenix has at the center spot, mainly because they don't have the depth that can provide some semblance of resistance and productivity. If Aiden gets in foul trouble, Jalen Smith was supposed to be that guy coming out of Maryland. He hasn't been that guy. I think personally they should have took Halliburton for the future because Paul isn't going to play forever. Need a future point guard to take that spot. Another topic for another day. So Aiden's the X factor. I, I just don't see him getting it done. And he needs to for this team to beat L.A. to move on. Next up, Denver, Portland, 3-6 matchup. Last time these two teams met in a playoff setting, Denver had an opportunity to make it to the conference final before they basically wet the bed at home in game seven. Portland, they're the lower seed, but they're the favorite because everybody's healthy on their team in comparison to Denver. Deshaun, who is the X factor in this series? The X factor in this series is going to be Michael Porter Jr. Because who can stay in front of him? He's tall. He can shoot. Um, you know, we know we know what Dame is. We know who T.J. McCollum is. Um, I don't think Nurk is going to get out on the perimeter to sit in front of Michael Porter Jr. Um, I think Yoke is too valuable in the paint to go sit in front of Michael Porter Jr. Um, and I think that, uh, not, I'm tripping. Um, I don't, yeah, Nurk is not going to go sit in front of, uh, he's not going to go outside the paint to go guard, uh, to go guard uh, Michael Porter Jr. So I think if he has the room to score as prolifically as we, we see and we know that he can, I think he'll be a great uh, boost for the team outside, considering that Jamal Murray isn't around. Yeah, I think, um, Michael Porter Jr. is not my selection, but I think he's going to uh, play a big part in them being able to win um, his size advantage over Norman Powell and um, even over Robert um, Covington. I think they don't have a, anybody who can match up well with him. So depending on how streaky he will be or not is going to play a big part. But I think the real X factor on this team is Aaron Gordon because Nurkic has um, in the past has played very good against Jokic. Um, obviously, they were teammates in Denver um, be before they decided to trade away Nurkic. Um, but I think that Aaron Gordon has been very passive since he's gotten to Denver and, you know, kind of just playing a back role and wanting to, you know, make everybody feel good and, you know, focusing on defense as he should. But much like Porter Jr., 
they don't have a matchup that's really good for, for Gordon either. Like Gordon, you put the ball on the floor, he can defend and he's super athletic and he can score. Like when he was in Orlando, he was averaging slightly under 20 points a game. So he has that ability to score. And with Murray being out, they need him to play like that second or third guy like that, that, you know, outside of Jokic and he can do it. I just think that, He's been very passive. I don't know if that's something with Mike Malone or what's going on, but he needs to be more aggressive and exploit the uh, strength he brings to that team. Yeah, I agree. Aaron Gordon is my X factor as well. And I deduct that as so because we know Jokic and Porter Jr. are going to get the touches. They have to. They're their two best offensive players. They both have to make up for the fact that Jamal Murray, they're explosive point guard in the backcourt is no longer there so Gordon when he came to the team profited off of a lot of backdoor cuts and ball movement without the basketball because he was coinciding with Jokic and he was the type of dude who could space the floor and also move without the basketball and profit off of the wizardry of Nikola's passing ability now he can do those things but he's going to have possessions where he has the ball in his hands and he's got to make things rock on his own He's got to be the creator. He's got to be the orchestrator of his own offensive identity. They're going to need him to do that because I think a lot of Denver scoring is going to come from their front court. It's going to be from those three. And then Millsap hopefully can turn back the hands of time and give them something because they're at such a tough disadvantage in the backcourt. When I say they have no true scoring ability back there, they don't really have it. Outside of Will Barton, who's very streaky. Gary Harris is no longer on the team. Murray, like I said before, is hurt. You know, they have guys in the backcourt in Monty Morris and the guy from Spain. I can't really think of his name at the top of my head. They're tough. Yeah, Capazzo. <laughs> they tough. They're tough. They make some underrated passes. They're gritty, but they give up a lot defensively from a size perspective. And they're not offensive threats. So their front court is going to have to carry them in this series to give them points that coincides with Gordon being a much more assertive and aggressive scorer in his role at the fourth spot. Last playoff series before we wrap it all up. L.A. Clippers, Dallas Mavericks. Deshaun, we get a nice one, a rematch from the bubble. But lack of a better terms, Dallas is not a great defensive team. And because of that, they're going to have to score a ton of points against an L.A. Clipper team that's deeper and much more deadlier offensively. Who are the X factor? Well, who is the X factor in this series? Um... I'm going to give it a toss-up between Porzingis and um, Rajon Rondo. Rajon Rondo being that the uh, the Clippers have a leader now. They went they went the entire season with nobody running their team. You know, you could say Kawhi, you could say PG, but neither of those men are facilitators. Um, neither of those men have um, have the have the gumption to facilitate a team. So. I think Rajon Rondo was a major acquisition for them. We'll see what he can do because he wasn't playing very well before he left Atlanta. Uh, so we'll see what he can do. But in Kristaps Porzingis, you know, a major piece that they were missing last season in the bubble because of an uh, injury. So we'll see if um, what he can do down low. Yeah, I think Kristaps is the safe pick here. Um, but I just don't trust him um, at this point. He's been injured too many times. So I think the X factor player 
is Serge Ibaka. I think that um, his health and defensive presence um, is going to play a key role. And, you know, if Chris Stapps is there, being able to, you know, rough him up a bit um, is going to sway the odds. So I think if he can come in and, and kind of um, make Chris Stapps uneasy and, um, and, you know, make things harder for Luca at the rim, but Luca's going to get what he wants. He always does. Um, but I think Chris Stapps, or not Chris Stapps, um, Serge Ibaka is going to be the X factor. Yeah, in this series, I'm going to go with the popular pick. Paul, Paul George, I mean, he's he's really the X factor here. And a lot of that is not just because of his ineptitude in the postseason last year, but offensively, they're explosive, but they're really explosive when George is hitting his shots from deep. When he hit, has a nice rhythm going from three, it opens up everything else offensively for whoever's on the floor. The court becomes a crater. Driving and kicking is the ideal message of the game. And the lanes become even wider when George has his shot falling. The last time I saw these two teams play early in the year, Clippers sucked. And a lot of that had to come back to the fact that it was right after Christmas. They just were not locked in at all. And Dallas embarrassed them. And a lot of that coincided with the fact that George was playing and he wasn't getting it done shooting the basketball consistently. So in this series where Dallas is not a very good defensive team, his ability to hit shots and regularity will open up everything else offensively. And that's going to be very important for the Clippers because this is a tune-up for them. You know, Dallas is a team that is even worse than last year. And I think a lot of that deals with the fact that they're not a great defensive team. And that's expected when your best player in Luka doesn't play defense. So George, his ability to get in the rhythm, his ability to get in the flow, to hit shots, and playmake for others is going to allow this team to have the confidence that they need because the next round when they play Utah, a team that they match up very well with, they're going to need their player to play well because George has demons against Utah from the past, or he hasn't shown very well against that team. So I'm going to pick PG in that aspect. Don't be surprised if PG averaged 30 in this series. Stop it. I would not be either. 30. That's how bad Dallas is defensively. So uh, he's gonna shot. come out with a vengeance. I'm telling you, watch. He will. We'll see. And with that, it's the end of episode 18 of the Independent Intel Podcast. But before I go, I want to thank my guests, Deshaun and Clem, old, old, old friends from At the Whistle, coming through in the clutch with some great NBA content. Um, before you guys go, how did you like the platform that you guys were able to talk on today? And what are you looking uh, forward to in the postseason? I loved it. Uh, it 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 felt like back at the uh at the whistle days without um <laughs> without Darius and his weird takes <laughs> with the Bulls and Derrick Rose. But uh, you know, I I you know I really enjoyed this. Um, um, Lakers versus Clippers in the conference finals. Um, I think the Lakers could do it in seven. Um, and I think the uh, I think it's going to be between Philly and Brooklyn and with Brooklyn coming out in six. But we'll see. Yeah, man, I, I love the uh, platform. Thanks again for having us, um, you know, at the Whistle Family Strong. You already know that. Um, stop running from us, though, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> my, my degree's wrapping up in August. I'll be graduating.
I need to come back on here because we, <laughs> we got some things to settle. I still got beef from 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 you saying Kobe not outside your top ten. I'm glad that you finally <laughs> admitted that he belongs there. But I got you know what I'm saying. Obviously, my my words have impacted you, right? So now you coming to your senses. So now we gotta have this Fox debate with Zoe. And now I was like, no, but uh, thanks for having us. And I would love to have, you know, the whole family on here. Uh, I don't know if the Zoom ready for, for uh, Darius <laughs> and Markeel and, and all of us on here at once. But no, nah, definitely invite us again, man. I love talking NBA and uh, appreciate you having us on. No problem, man. You know, ideally, next few episodes, all of us on here, that would be legendary. It would be very important to make sure those guys don't talk over each other. I mean, that's that's ever so important in a platform like that with those guys there. But I'm glad you guys wanted to be a part of this. And it's going to be more episodes with us involved to come. With that, I'll see you guys I'm next week. I'm for, definitely tuning in into the future as well. So, For sure, for sure. I mean, hey. With that, episode 18 is concluded. Be back next week with episode 19. Everybody enjoy the playoffs. It's going to be a great one. Stay tuned.